the Genesis Foundation approaches its 20th anniversary. And during those 20 years, it's played a major role in the lives of numerous musicians, actors and artists in the UK. Every two years, the Genesis Foundation awards the Genesis Prize to recognise an outstanding mentor of young artistic talent whose work has affected real change in the practice and careers of arts professionals or graduates. The £25,000 Genesis Prize is the first and only prize of its kind to recognise individuals who give others the confidence and inspiration to achieve artistic excellence in their chosen arts field. It's designed to assist the prize winners in furthering their work. The 2020 recipient of the Genesis Prize is the artist Rebecca Salter, who impressed the distinguished panel of judges for her work as the keeper of the Royal Academy of Arts, with the responsibility of guiding the Royal Academy schools. Last December, Rebecca was appointed the Royal Academy's first female president. She's decided to use her prize to establish a scheme to focus on resilience and offer guidance to the Royal Academy students. To steer the sessions, she's appointed the psychotherapist and Qigong teacher Barry Smale, who also teaches various forms of meditation. And for this Genesis 20 podcast, Barry, who also works with students at RADA, joined Rebecca Salter to discuss her vision for the scheme. But the conversation started with Rebecca recalling her own first steps after graduating as an art student. I graduated in 1977 and... At that time, most artists, in fact, almost 100%, wanted to go to New York because right. that was where, you know, that was the centre of the art world. Mm. And for some weird reason, I decided to go in the opposite direction to Japan. It took me two years to organise the scholarship, the place at university and all the rest of it. And then I just flew to Japan. I mean, I didn't know anybody, couldn't speak Japanese. I'd lied about well, my application form. I'd said oh, I could speed oh, read and write Japanese, really? which was really naughty. I was so desperate to go. And, of course, I arrived there, and it was extraordinary. It's a very powerful experience to go from being a... Fu- I mean, how old was I? I was 24. So you're, you're kind of a functioning mm. adult, and you think you're OK, and mm. then you turn up somewhere, and you are worse than useless because you can't read, you can't mm. speak, and you can't write. You can do nothing. When you left, did yeah. you feel equipped? No, no, because right. I, was, I, was, I was young and I was desperate to go. I mean, I would have walked through fire to go to Japan. But reflecting on it now, particularly when you talk to students who, you know, go off around the world, or anybody goes off around the world, I think the huge advantage I had was that I had no option but to learn how to live in Japan, because... Mm you know, pre-Skype and FaceTime, Mm. you know, I couldn't continue an old life. And I Mm. would certainly never have learnt Japanese if I'd had regular Skype and FaceTime, because you wouldn't. But in order to have a life, I I became Japanese. I learnt Japanese and I read it and write it and speak it. But it would be terribly hard to do that now. Because you'd be constantly on your phone or Skype. And you, you would constantly be in two places. And it was unbelievably tough in many ways. And what, what did get you through it then? Um, <laughs> one thing was that I, had, I was so desperate to go. And so I don't know why I was fixated on Japan. So I was absolutely desperate to go. So I was not going to fail. Mm. But I arrived at the university 
And I'd gone with a, a Leverhulme scholarship, which is a very prestigious thing to have here, but the Japanese had never heard of it. Right. So literally, they, the university ignored me for the first six months. I mean, no, none of the tutors spoke to me. They didn't give me a space to work, nothing. And that was tough. Mm. <laughs> but At 24 years old in yeah. a country where you don't speak yeah. the language yeah. and don't understand the yeah. culture. But, of course, if you think about it now, you'd probably be on Skype every evening to your friends and parents saying how horrible it was. Mm. Whereas I had no choice but to make a life with, you know, so I became friends with the students and I, became, I had a completely Japanese life. I mean, there were, I mean, I was thinking about it the other day, there were probably months when I never spoke English. But presumably you had enough resource, you had enough money to live. No, because I had a very tiny scholarship and I realised very quickly that I couldn't survive on it. So I started teaching English part-time and I lived with a family. So, and, you know, I just cobbled together mm. a, a life. And did you, before you went, did you have, I mean, I call them mind worms. <laughs> did, you, did you have those kind of little negative thoughts about yourself or what would happen? I mean, were you no, one of those people? No, no. I was lucky in that my parents were always sort of, well, no news is good news type of parents. Mm. So I was probably gone for three weeks before my parents knew I was still alive. Right. And, you know, nowadays, if people are missing for three hours, people panic. Mm. And so mm. I just think it's almost being, I mean, I suppose my parents just sort of, trusted that I'd be okay. And you must have And trusted. I trusted that I would be okay. And do you see that as resilience or naivety? I think it's a combination. Yeah. I think it's helped hugely by naivety and I think it's helped by actually knowing less. I mean, now people know mm. so much more, don't they? But now you'd have looked through TripAdvisor, you know, you'd have read everything on the web telling you what to do, where to go and all yeah. the rest of it. Whereas I just got off the plane and made it up as I went along. So, so what qualities? Because I'm trying to ima- I'm trying to imagine it, and I, I remember being well, no, but I mean I remember being between about seventeen to twenty four, and I was largely unaware, I think, mm. of difficulties with the world. It, you, you almost kind of I did remember kind of living moment to moment with mm. no real thought of the future, mm. and I think in a way that that was quite useful. But what what quality was it? Do you think what qualities? got you through that first six months? Being quite stubborn, I think. Right. You know, I just thought, this is not going to defeat me. You know, I've come all this way and, it's, you know, I'm going to make this work, yeah. I think. is is And who knows where that came from. I think the other thing which I kind of reflect on afterwards, having taught quite a lot, is that when I think back to our student cohort, even though graduating 1977 was seriously tough, hmm. because we'd got the three-day week... You know, mm. the dead were unburied, there were piles of rubbish in the street, there were no jobs you could find, you couldn't find a place to live in London if you tried. We were incredibly optimistic. Mm. And when we talked about, I don't know, there was a feeling that we could do anything. Uh, there was optimism in our work, but for almost all my teaching career, certainly of the last 15 years, students are not very optimistic. There's a lot of kind of slightly nostalgic work about memory, a lot of looking back, mm. and a lot of slightly rosy looking back. Or either that, or else you get quite what I call, not misery memoirs, but sort of misery work. Mm. 
And I just reflect on at what point did that optimism disappear? Hmm. Because, you know, I know it's tough now, but 1977 was pretty tough to graduate. So what was happening to artists then? Well, the that's artists that I were did. graduating in 77, what was happening to them? I just think there was still, perhaps more generally, a feeling of optimism in that, you know, it sounds pathetic, but, you know, people had gone to the moon, and, I mean, there was all sorts of... Mm. That sort of, you know, amazing stuff was happening. But sometimes I look at students and I think, you know, you've got all this incredible technology. Mm. Why aren't you more optimistic? And I don't know why. I mean, you might know why. Well, but optimistic about, about what? About you mean just, just life future, in general? Life in general. So life yeah. is going to get better. That, or life, you know, you will be able to make a There will be a life. As an artist or...? Yeah, yeah. And was that true? No, because of course there were no jobs. Nobody right. could survive as an artist. But we... No, sort of a naivety, maybe. I don't so, know. do you think? So, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. Mm. Do you think that disillusion set in for something? Because you've well, done I'm amazing wondering, things, yeah. Aren't you? But, but I'm, I wonder what happened. I mean, I'm wondering whether between me graduating in 1977 and students graduating over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, has the whole world become more cynical and mm. and pessimistic? I don't know. I mean, realistic optimism and hope and kind of fortitude mm. and that stuff, but then kind of naive yes. um, assumptions that, that that can lead to, I think, to people feeling really... I think the difference with artists is that deep down we all know the statistics are against us, you know, because statistically how many artists... Mm. I don't know what the figures are, but it's tiny. Mm. How many will ever realistically expect to live from their work. I think there might be a difference in when I was, because obviously when I was at art school, you know, we didn't pay fees, you know, the art schools were independent, not part of universities. Mm. And so we all knew that was the score. Whereas I think now, because, you know, the, they're paying fees and universities then have to account for the number of sort of successful mm. graduates, because that's a way of scoring how good the university mm -hmm. is. It's very difficult because we all know they're not all going to become artists, mm. but you can't really say that too overtly. Mm. How, to, how do you deal with that, with, with a new cohort? I mean, it's interesting because I've just come away from yes, doing from that talking to two-hour session about some of this stuff. Right, right, interesting. So from the Royal Academy point of view or from your point of view, how do you deal with that? This isn't a place that's training artists to go out and get jobs as artists, right. fundamentally. And I think the strength has always been, I think particularly of the art school system in this country, is that people have gone on to do unexpected things, you know, so they've gone on to be the Beatles or, God knows, mm. or design the iPhone or whatever. And in particular, I've been very clear, and when I talk to people about what we do in the schools, right. I say, look, you know, it is no good assuming every one of these students is going to go out and be taken up by one of the major galleries because it isn't going to happen. Mm. But they will go off and do extraordinary things. They will write, they will curate, they will do you know, amazing things with new technology. Mm -hmm. But we're not a sort of factory for artists. No. Because that's, the expectations are just too much, really. And it's just not going to happen. No. And do you think... The students are more realistic about that than they were. I've always, I think students and artists in general are quite realistic. Mm. And people often think 
that there will be sort of kind of horrible jealousy. I mean, there are petty jealousies mm. and sort of, you know, or they're doing better than I'm doing. But you will often find that artists will look around and think, mm, actually, you know, she's really good. Mm. And they will acknowledge people in their, in their peers mm. who they think, maybe grudgingly, but they will acknowledge that they're, mm, yeah, they've got something about them. I mean, I've only recently found out about the Genesis Foundation. I went and looked at the website. It's very interesting. So I understand you won, I think, with the Genesis, Genesis Prize. Well, Indeed, well, which is a prize for mentors. So in my role as mentoring the students in the Royal Academy schools, because I've got, you know, because I was interested in pastoral care and mm. bolstering that side of what we do, I also see this as an extension of how we bring our graduates back into the fold and we sort of carrying on. So we, to some extent, mentor them as they go out into the world, but then they're able to mentor the students who are either still in the schools or when they graduate. So we get a sort of ecology going. Mm. And I see it much more as a sort of without being too ambitious, as something that could see them through their careers. And if it helps one student Mm. get over that sort of dark hour when they're sitting in their studio with a blank something or another Mm. and thinking, who am I, what am Mm. I, what the hell am I doing, Mm. then I think it's a very valuable contribution. So that's the link between... I mean, it's a series of chance conversations which I think are developing into... Probably an even bigger conversation, given that the interest mm. that there is in the work that you've been doing, mm. both with drama students and now with visual arts mm. students, I think increasingly people are in higher education are looking at these programmes to see if they are going to be useful in dealing with what is unhappiness and difficulty mm. on in higher education particularly. Yes. I was very grateful, you know, when you asked me to come in and do this because I think it's a lot of information mm. that is really useful for yes. everybody. Yeah. For me, the trick is not to make it a thing. So I don't actually, I don't like calling it resilience yeah. actually because then it becomes a thing, thing. and then people define it mm. and then people argue about it. That's how we get religious wars, you know, of all kinds. For me, it's a bunch of information yes. that... I think is useful. For me, it's not—it's not a thing. Mm. It's a kind of—it's a living body of information and understanding that we have about how we operate as human beings and how that can confer advantages. But equally, we know very well now what the kind of disadvantages that it can also bring. Yes, and that can be very well understood by ev- by everybody. Mm. It doesn't take a neuroscientist. Do you understand the implications of that? Mm. And that's what I love, is coming in and not trying to teach somebody what to do. That's hopeless. But giving them a bunch of information and say, look... Off you go. Yeah, that's my understanding of what happens for a human being, the advantages and disadvantages. Here's my understanding of the kinds of things that you can do to affect it. You know, we've got a highly motivated student mm. body who, generally speaking, graduate and go out there and do stuff. And I like the idea that by having this programme, which 
is funded by the prize, they will go out there and it will magnify, mm. it'll multiply. Yeah. Because they will use it in different ways and they will bring it to bear on, who knows, curation, maybe mm. teaching, maybe writing. I mean, who knows what mm. they'll do with it. But it's like, a, it is a seed. It, absolutely. It? That's yeah. the way I look at and it. And it will, it will go off in extra. And I also think the fact that you've worked with drama students and now you've worked with visual artists, I think also there's interesting possibilities around you know, it growing into other sectors and there will be a body of knowledge. Mm. Absolutely. Will, I'm, I'm really hopeful for it. That's what excites me, is mm. that these people are motivated enough. Yeah. They're in a challenge enough situation that they've, they've been given some things and they are starting to use, use them. them. A yes. bit like you in Japan. Yeah. You didn't have yes. any choice. choice. Yeah, you were exactly. highly motivated, motivated to make that work. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you asked me to come in and do stuff about resilience, what did you think it was going to be about? Well, I mean, to be absolutely honest, it was... Because when I took over as keeper, I, I decided I wanted to do something about pastoral care because I think we have a duty of care to these students who we have here. Even though... I mean, sometimes people say, yes, but they're quite old. And I think, well, OK, so the average age is 28, but that doesn't mean you don't have a duty of care mm. to them. And so we have set something up. And then, of course, you know, obviously, they then go and talk to the councillor about things. And so in my head, I thought, well, maybe there's a stage before that because it causes a huge amount of distress. And as you say, mm. it almost, the whole process seizes up mm. somehow mm. because they're dealing with whatever it is. And so rather naively, not knowing a great deal about psychotherapy, really, I just thought, well, maybe there's something we can do, which means that they might feel more equipped yeah. and not perhaps need to go to the counsellor in the end. And then I had this chance conversation with Edward Kemp mm. from RADA about resilience, and I thought, well, it would be very interesting for you to work with visual artists as well as having word worked with. So I don't know whether you've come... Have you formed any thoughts about any differences, similarities? Well... Performance is a very interesting because, yes. of course, it is to some extent... Yeah. Being a visual artist is performative in a way. It's not the same as standing up on a stage, but you are exposing yourself. Yes. So when I came... Obviously, I spent some time here talking to some of the lecturers about the kinds of issues that they were facing. Mm. And a lot of them were very similar to the kinds of stuff that I'd been talking to the lecturers at RADA about. So, you know, a very challenging course mm. that would push people to think, feel and do things that they hadn't maybe thought, felt or done before. And that that was inherently for a human being mildly stressful. And what they'd been noticing was that there were more people popping, if you like, right. than there had been. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was broadly the same when I when I came here, when I mm. talked to the to the lecturers, it was the same kind of thing. Yeah, we're going to push them and we want to push them and we want to extend them and get them out of their comfort zone about the way that they think about themselves and the world. But we want to do that in an environment where they, they don't... They don't seize up right. or collapse. So there were lots of similarities. And another similarity, 
and I was talking to them about it today. I used to be a computer programmer, yeah? And when I started to be a computer programmer, I would write a computer program mm. and it would either work or it didn't. And then I would mess about with it and fix it. And then that would be an independent entity that would go off and do its stuff. Mm-hmm. And I never in any way confused that computer program with me. Right. But I think that's harder. <laughs> For, a, for an actor or mm. for an artist. Mm. And of course, when I said that to them, they were all la- laughing, but, you know, it was a slightly um, <laughs> rueful kind of yes. laugh. Because it's harder, I think, w- when you're doing that kind of stuff. Not that I've ever... I did used to write songs, but, I, but even that I don't think is quite the same. And all of the artists that I've worked f- with, or a lot of them, I think that they find that much harder particularly in their formative years Mm. where people are looking at something which is they feel is a manifestation of themselves Mm. yes and they're making quite cutting and sharp remarks you know the kind of thing that you wouldn't say to somebody in a social situation they're saying it about this thing that they've produced yeah and I think that that can feel very personal Mm. so Lots of similarities. And I'm, I wonder whether also, because there's been a change in the way art is taught since when I was at art right. school, there is a greater emphasis on words. So when I was at art school, it was possible to get into art school purely on a portfolio right. of work, which means that an awful lot of people who'd been, you know, struggled at school mm. with words finally found this place which was very friendly and comfortable Mm. place to be because Mm. it was sort of speaking their language but because of the changes in the art school system because they're part of universities and because of all these you know research grants and all the rest of it increasingly students need to be able to write about their work and talk about their work and so I think what's possibly happened is that you know, when I was at art school, it would be perfectly possible for somebody to spend their entire time doing work about, you know, colour or something. Mm. Whereas now, there's a, a huge amount of what I would call autobiographical work. Mm. And if your work is autobiographical, that's even, you know, it's hard enough to put your work on the wall and say, this is all about how red reacts with mm. blue or something. Um, but if it's all about, you know, my childhood or my this or my that, hmm. it's even more revealing and more difficult and possibly more difficult than being an actor because as an actor, ultimately, you're inhabiting a character in yeah. a play which gives you a little bit of a let-out clause, possibly. I don't I know. Think it does I don't it. know what you think. No, well, I think, it does, <laughs> I, th- I think it does probably when you get to that part of the process. I think the big problem for actors is the whole audition process. That's true, yeah. Because they're yes. not really ex- inhabiting yeah. a character. They're going along and going, hello, this is me. <laughs> and either they never hear anything ever again or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they yeah. get a call saying, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll let you do this one. Yeah. So, so I... I I wouldn't want to do either of them personally. No. I would struggle with with that, what must for many people feel like a constant series of rejections. Yes, yes. I think there is some, I mean, something else which I've always done in the years that I've been teaching is that I, I realised very early on in my career that it was quite important to talk about failure. 
because I noticed, because I was, interestingly, when I was at art school, I was never taught by, I'm not never taught by a woman Mm. at all. They were all successful male artists who would come in and give these lectures about their career, which in those days they were slide lectures. And, of course, the, it was a perfect trajectory. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, they went yeah. from being at art school to being unbelievably famous yeah. and didn't pass go. Yeah. And it took me a while, but I did realise that you spent an awful lot of your time as an artist down cul-de-sacs. Mm. And the really important lesson to learn was how to kind of turn around and come back out again. Yeah. And the only way to really do that was to understand and to kind of confront and learn from failure and actually to even speak about it because nobody had ever talked about it. No. I think that was interesting when I was talking to the students today Mm. um, because it came up around about the whole thing about competition and failure and that kind of stuff and I was asking them what you know how they were being prepared for that Mm. and I'm not clear that they felt it was openly discussed and acknowledged so it was something that they were aware of aware and dealing of, with, yes. but maybe not as a group. And maybe that's not something that you would want to do here anyway, but it, but it, was, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. The other interesting question which you get all your life as an artist, this is what I call the dinner party question. You sit down next to somebody and they say, what do you do? And you say, an artist. And then the first question is, do you do portraits? Yeah. Which, of course, I don't. So I'm yeah. a disappointment. The second question is, are you successful? And of course, you think, well, God, I wonder whether I'm successful or not. And after a while, I realised that the only answer to that question was, well, you tell me how do you define mm. success, and then I'll tell you if I'm mm. successful whether by their I mean standards. Knowing <laughs> full well that their measure of success was, well, I've heard of you, and yes. do you make a yes. lot of money? Yes, are you making money? Are you making money? <laughs> are you with yes. a famous gallery? Are you famous? You know, all those questions... And, of course, the answer to all those would have been no. And so you then have to define success for yourself because otherwise you constantly would be not measuring up. Yes. So I defined success for me as I work all day in my studio, I finish a piece of work, and then I put it away in a drawer. Yeah. I've successfully you completed the my, my job as an artist. Yeah. You have to focus on the area of this world, the art world or the theatre world, whatever it is, that you have got any control over. Mm. And as an artist, the only thing you can really control is the quality of your work, Mm. the integrity of your work Mm. as an artist. And you will never be able to control, you know, the galleries, the art market, the art world, Mm. the curators, the critics. So don't even try. Rebecca Salter, the president of the Royal Academy of Arts and recipient of the 2020 Genesis Prize, was in conversation with the psychotherapist Barry Smale. And for more information about the Genesis Foundation and its partners, please visit genesisfoundation.org.uk.